Today is the seventh day of the Days of Unleavened Bread. The Days of Unleavened Bread, as I mentioned, Sabbath, show our part in God's plan of salvation. The Bible study course from Ambassador College, Bible Correspondence Course, Lesson Number 34, has this as its introduction. Days of Unleavened Bread, your part in God's master plan. You have probably heard the saying, Jesus Christ led a perfect life in your stead. There is nothing at all for you to do but believe. Most ministers say God's law was nailed to the cross. It is unnecessary to keep the Ten Commandments today. Are these commonly accepted ideas really true? Is there nothing you must do to inherit eternal life? That's the introduction for Lesson 34 of the Ambassador College Bible Correspondence Course. And, of course, you know the answers to those questions, and the Days of Unleavened Bread give us that answer. The children of Israel began their exodus on the night of Nisan 15, under a full moon. Our historians have determined that that would have been 1446 B.C. But it's interesting to know that... uh, Dr. Mike Germano informs us in his Living University Archaeology of the Old Testament class that the Hebrew calendar 2315 is the same as the year 1446 B.C. And if you go to Rosetta calendar, and I did that last night for the first time, uh, but it's a very good historic tool, Rosetta calendar, and enter in, there are three sites, Gregorian, Roman, and Hebrew calendar. If you enter into the Hebrew calendar, 14 Nisan, 2315, in the Hebrew calendar field, you will see that the 14th was a Wednesday of that year. And 2315 is the equivalent of 1446 B.C. Of course, the Passover would be the night before, Tuesday night, as we saw Last Sabbath, on the 15th of the first month, the children journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. That was Exodus 12:37 and Numbers 33. So I would encourage those of you who are interested in history to uh, go to the Rosetta uh, calendar website and put in that 14 Nisan 2315, and you'll see that the Passover that year was a Wednesday, the same as in 31 A.D., when Christ kept the Passover the night before. Now, the Israelites went towards the Red Sea. God especially planned to have them trapped there by the Red Sea. You might turn to Exodus, the 14th chapter. They were on their way out of Egypt. Today, as spiritual Israel, we strive to come out of spiritual Egypt as we've heard in several of the comments. But sometimes sin and Satan come after us, even after baptism. And we need deliverance from God once again. But we must come completely out of sin. Not just halfway, as the Israelites did. We must conquer sin completely. And that's the title of the sermon, Conquer Sin Completely. God gave Israel a great victory. Exodus 14 and verse 1. 
Now the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon, you shall camp before the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land, the wilderness closed in on them. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them. And of course, they were very, very frightened. Verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Eternal. And so we cry out to the Eternal in our lives when we are desperate, when we need God's intervention. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? So, again, some of you may have seen that uh, Saturday night in the Ten Commandment movie. But Moses said to the people, verse 13, Do not be afraid, stand still, and see the salvation of the Eternal, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Eternal will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So there are times when we cry out for God to save us. I won't turn there, but I'll just refer you, as I did in the Sermon Sabbath, to Psalm 6 and Psalm 7. In Psalm 6, verse 4, David cried out to God to save him. Return, O Eternal, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? That's Psalm 6 and verse 4. Oh, David is saying, you need to keep me alive because if I'm dead, you're not going to hear me giving you thanks. So he gave God a reason to keep him alive. And I hope we realize that here, one of the keys of overcoming is being thankful. In the grave, no, you're not going to hear me giving you thanks. So if I'm alive, you are going to hear me being very grateful and giving you thanks all the time. Psalm 7, verse 1. David again asked God to save him. O eternal my God. In you I put my trust. As I said, I think we were there in Kentucky and on the license plate, in God we trust. It was good to see that. In you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. And you know the classic story, which we've shared with you before, of Peter walking out on the water, Matthew the 14th chapter, But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink and cried out saying, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So there are times when we need to stand still. There are times when God expects us to act. So he tells us here in verse 13, he tells us to stand still. But then in verse 15, the Eternal said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. So there are times when we stand still. There are times when we go forward. In the future, perhaps we will have to be on our own exodus. I remember years ago when uh, Dr. Hay was speculating that perhaps the spiritual Israel would retrace the exact same steps of physical Israel 
in a wilderness exodus. And he was speculating, would spiritual Israel complain the same way physical Israel complained? I gave you Philippians 2.14, do all things without murmurings and complainings. Sometimes we think, oh yes, these carnal Israelites, we wouldn't be that, we wouldn't be that way. We wouldn't complain because we had no food or we had no water, or would we? God would expect us to do something differently, to have a higher standard of character and to trust Him. So we may have to sometime flee. Of course, He tells us, you don't need to turn there, but Matthew 10, 23, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. So there are times when we may have to move. I think I did an analysis of... uh, my locations in life and I think as a single person I lived in 15 different places and as a married person about 25 different places thankfully we've been here in Charlotte for 11 years so we're very thankful to have lived in one place we, my first assignment after graduation in 1965 my wife and I were on a baptizing tour for a month so we were strangers and pilgrims on the earth And then we were three and a half weeks in Akron, Ohio, where we lived in an apartment. Only three and a half weeks. And then I was assigned to Cincinnati, where we lived for 11 months. And then we moved to Gladewater, Texas, where we were for one year. And then we moved to the Ambassador Campus, where we lived for 10 years, July 27th, 1967 to July 27th, 1977. Now 11 years here in Charlotte, for which we're very thankful but we need to be ready to move. Mr. League asked this morning, would you be ready to flee? Would you be ready to move out even now? Well, God gave Israel a great victory and triumph. And so Exodus 15 is the victory song. We sang that in the hymn this morning. Exodus, the 15th chapter, verse 1. And Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Eternal and spoke, I will sing to the Eternal, for he has... Now mark this in my Bible, triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The eternal is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. Then later on in verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And I... Maybe that's something, any of you have a timbrel, and that would be interesting, maybe in our next fun show. And Miriam answered them, sing to the eternal, for he has triumphed gloriously. God gave Israel a great victory. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Has God promised us victory and triumph? One of my favorite verses of the past couple of years, is you might hold your place uh, there. We'll be coming back to Exodus uh, perhaps later on, but let's turn to Second Corinthians, the second chapter. This has become, as I said, one of my favorite verses in the last couple of years or so. Second Corinthians, the second chapter, and verse 14. A remarkable promise that God gives us. Second Corinthians 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. 
Do you think about that when you're facing trials and trial problems? God says he always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, sometimes we're, we're blocked, we have obstacles, and what we expect is uh, very disappointing. But when God allows us to be blocked in one area, he may open a door in another area. And we remember Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So sometimes we're disappointed because we have expectations that God should lead us in this direction, but he's going to block that direction and make you go in another direction. But they all work out together for good. And the last part of that verse, 2 Corinthians 2.14, and through us, the ministry, and through you as God's people is the light of the world. Through us diffuses the fragrance. And this is a beautiful fragrance. Remember, he talks about the incense coming up before God's throne as the prayers of the saints. That's in the book of Revelation. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. We understand who and what God is. We understand the truth. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. So salvation is a past process that we've been saved from our past sins. We are now being saved, and he who endures to the end shall be saved. Are being saved among those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? But remember God's promise here. Verse 14, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Have you ever claimed that promise? Well, God gave Israel great victory and triumph. There are times he expects us to stand still, and times he expects us to go forward and to act. But we need to conquer sin completely. The days of unleavened bread, as we heard this morning, show us the need to come out of sin and to get sin out of ourselves. Of course, the Israelites came out of Egypt. As Mr. Lee pointed out, they didn't get Egypt out of themselves. We need to eat daily, who have been, unleavened bread seven days, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we are to become unleavened bread, as we heard in the analogy in the sermonette, just this morning, this afternoon. But we have to be vigilant in identifying any leaven of sin around us. And so it's interesting. I've, my wife will just read all the ingredients on something, and, and I have been doing that recently. Until recently, the days of all bread, I've started reading what are all the ingredients in some of these baked goods and some of these other products. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. We've read it several times, but on this last day of Unleavened bread, let's internalize it. Let's know it. Let's practice it. First Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Your glorying is not good. And isn't that what the world is doing? It is just prideful and vain in its approval of perverse sexual practices and immorality. Your glorying is not good. Here they had the sexual immorality, verse 1, in their congregation. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
So it doesn't have to be a lot of leaven, but just a little leaven. Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed, sacrificed for us. I don't know if you've marked that in your Bible, but you might mark that phrase, for us. He loved us and gave himself for us. Galatians 2.20. And there are so many other places where it tells us how he loved us, gave himself for us. You should mark that in your Bible. Was sacrificed for us. Let us therefore keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, symbol symbolizing human nature, symbolizing sin, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In the last sermon we emphasized the matter of truth. That we are being conformed to truth. And we are to obey the truth. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. John 8, verse 32. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's why we continually examine ourselves. Turn back to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. How can we completely come out of sin? How can we completely conquer sin? Psalm 139. Well, we're going to see some encouraging scriptures along that line. Psalm 139. But it's a process, of course. Throughout the days of unleavened bread, it isn't just an event. It goes on for seven days to say this is something we must continually do. Psalm 139 and verse 23. David is saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Well, that's difficult to do, to ask God to reveal to you, as Mr. League was emphasizing this morning, our hidden sins, our secret attitudes, what's hidden in our heart that we may not even be aware of consciously. Search me, O God. Psalm 139, verse 23, And know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So if there is a wicked way in me and I don't see it, please lead me in the way everlasting. Help me to change. Well, the Israelites had all these miracles. God gave them victories and triumphs. They triumphed gloriously, as Miriam sang. But the children of Israel didn't remember God's deliverance very long. And the word remember, you could probably do a Bible study on the word remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They didn't have a a very long-term memory. They forgot quite frequently. God tells us to remember. But when we face trials, do we forget the many times that God has delivered us in the past. You know, I think of the times that I'm going through trials and troubles and realize, well, I need to remember how God healed me of my painful back and I couldn't even crawl. And yet, after Mr. Meredith anointed me, three hours later, I was able to get out of bed and walk. I have to remember the time that God healed me, the time that God rescued me, the time that God intervened for me. Well, Moses had gone up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And the people didn't 
remember God's promises. They got their eyes off the goal, as we pointed out in the sermon last Sabbath. If you're going to overcome, you need to see the big picture and keep your eyes on the goal. Exodus 31 and verse 1. The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, of chapter, sorry, I got chapter 31. Chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that we, that shall go before us. They had heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai when he spoke the Ten Commandments. And they said to Moses, Don't let God speak to us, you speak to us. They should have known better, and now they're saying, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And Aaron said, Now what What did Aaron do? You can't, It's hard to believe that Aaron would have given in to the pressure. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So they broke them off and received the gold, put them in the fashioned it in an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. Verse 4. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, how stupid can you be? They committed idolatry. They should have known better. So here was the golden calf, and what did they do? They rose up to play. And uh, it's at the end of uh, verse 6. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings to the people, sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. So God's saying to Moses, get down. Moses, your, your people have corrupted themselves. And so Moses comes down and meets Joshua uh, part, uh, part of the way down and comes down and uh, finds out that, yes, they have corrupted themselves. And so Moses is asking Aaron, uh, what did you do, Aaron? Chapter 32, verse 22. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man, this man who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And I said to them, you know, whoever has gold, let them break it off. And they gave it to me. Listen to this. I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. How did this, this, this I, you know, I just threw it in there and this calf came out. Well, of course, it didn't happen that way. But if you were Aaron, would you have given in to the pressure? Now, he gave in to that pressure. Remember that we are observing the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, and Aaron did not stand up for the truth. Will you stand up for the truth? If you were Aaron, what would you have done? Are you committed to stand up for the truth? Yesterday, April 20th, 2014, was the anniversary of the Columbine, Colorado High School shooting tragedy. In 1999, 
Two students killed 12 classmates and one teacher before taking their own lives. One student, Valine Schnur, was shot by one of them, and he asked her, do you believe in God? Here she'd been injured. Now, we don't know to what that injury was in reading the reports. But she'd been shot by this guy, and he says, do you believe in God? And she said, yes. The Washington Post reported that, quote, by some miracle, he walked away and she lived. She stood up for her convictions in spite of injury and abuse. The Washington Post, Thursday, October 14, 1999, page C01, had as its headline, Columbine Miracle, A Matter of Belief. Will you stand up for the truth? Mr. Bob Lee gave two sermons along that line. Sermon number 615, Who Will Stand? In sermon number 777, easy to remember, it was on the Feast of Trumpets 2013, titled, Will He Find Faith and Who Can Stand? We saw this morning in 1 Corinthians 10.6, as Mr. Lee read, that those that committed sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Well, they reaped what they had sown. Last night I got to see uh, that, no, it was Saturday night, got to see the last ten minutes of the Ten Commandment movie on ABC television network. It went from 7 p.m. to 11.44 p.m., so four hours and 44 minutes on ABC television. But I just saw the last ten minutes of it. And here when I tune it in, Dathan is organizing this real orgy, worshiping the golden calf, and and all kinds of uh, immorality are going on. And, of course, Moses confronts the people, and Dathan says, we're free, we intend to go back to Egypt. But Moses tells the people, in essence, you need to choose between Moses and Moses God and Dathan, whether you want to go back to Egypt or not. And, of course, the people come over. When you read uh, the scriptures, uh, the Levites uh, dispatch some of those. Of course, the movie on Saturday night wrongly showed the earth opening up. Well, that happened later on in the second year. That's Numbers, the 16th chapter. Read, uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus, the 16th chapter. When you read Leviticus 1, you're reading about the second year of the Exodus. So when the earth opened up, that really was in the second year, but not as shown in the movie. They did die, as we just read in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, but not by the earth opening up. That was the rebellion of Dathan and Abiram in Numbers, the 16th chapter. Well, the movie ended with the inspiring proclamation of Leviticus 25, verse 10. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants thereof. I don't know if any of you have been to the Liberty Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the Liberty Bell, and on the Liberty Bell is inscribed Leviticus 25.10, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. 
You might stay, uh, keep your place there in Exodus 32, but let's turn to Romans, the sixth chapter, verse 18. Romans 6 and verse 18. Are we free? Here they were free from Egypt, but are we free? In what way are we free? We discussed that briefly before, but look what he says right here in Romans 6 and verse 18. If you haven't got that marked, you may want to remark that in your Bible. And having been set free from sin, we can rejoice during the days of olive and bread and after the Passover that we have been set free from sin. And when we've done that, we have become slaves of righteousness. As I read the other day, verse 24, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now having been, verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are free from the penalty of sin. Why? Because Christ paid for the penalty of sin through his shed blood. And as we read this morning in 1 John 1 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So we are continually cleansed if we walk in the light. But we are under grace. Romans the 8th chapter, Romans 8, such a beautiful gift that God gives us in the Christian walk on our daily exodus. Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it's a walk of life that we're walking according to the Spirit, and we have that repentant attitude Because when we find out that we've sinned, if we're walking in the Spirit, and all of a sudden we're shocked and we realize, "Uh uh-oh, I sinned, I offended someone, I lusted, I said something wrong, you immediately repent and ask God's forgiveness. And with that repentant attitude, He forgives you And therefore, there is no condemnation. Why? Because you've repented. And you have that continual attitude of teachability and humility and repentance. What a wonderful verse. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's how we are free from sin. But we must guard against the pervasive Leaven of sin, malice, and wickedness. We cannot tolerate sin. The Corinthians tolerated sin. They approved of sin. And of course we're warned about that in Romans, the first chapter, that those who approve of the wickedness are just as guilty of those who are practicing immorality. How do we not tolerate sin? Well, why we're here, I guess, in Romans, you might as well turn over to Romans 12 and verse 9. 
Our attitude has got to be, we do not tolerate sin. If we're going to completely conquer it, we need to recognize it and what? Abhor it, meaning despise evil. Romans 12 and verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Leaven is also a form of hypocrisy that the Pharisees had. You read that back in the Gospels. Let love be without hypocrisy. That pure heart, that simplicity of heart. Abhor what is evil. You reject it. You despise evil. You don't just tolerate it. Cling to what is good. So you have that attitude. You don't need to turn there, but Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the eternal is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs 8.13. So how do you conquer sin? You must recognize what it is and abhor it, reject it, and hate it. And we know that God is going to protect those who have that kind of attitude. You don't need to turn there again. I'll just read it to you. You know it by heart. Ezekiel 9 verse 4. And the eternal said to him, that is to the angel, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Do you sigh and cry for the abominations that you read about? We were staying up there in the home of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Greer and uh, they did not take a newspaper. And I thought, well, what's going on in the world? And I, I got on my Android and put in breaking news. And I thought, oh, no, I don't want to know what's going on in the world. <laughs> all of this evil, all of this stuff, the abominations, the, the tragedies that are happening, the, the ferry that tipped over, 300 missing. And I pray for those 300 missing people. I don't know if you've done that. You should. But you realize what is going on in the world? We need to abhor the abominations that are done within it. God is going to protect those who have that attitude. Do we conquer sin completely? We have to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Moses symbolically did that to the golden calf. Let's go back to Exodus, the 32nd chapter. I thought I was going to come back there. Exodus 32. And verse 20, what did he do with the golden calf? Symbolic of sin. Then they took the calf, Exodus 32, 20, which they had made. He burned it with fire and ground it to powder. Is that what you do with your sins? You have to take your sins and grind it to powder symbolically. And he scattered on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great a sin upon them? And of course, he did not stand up for the truth like he should have. So we see then that we must grind our sins into powder. We need need to completely come out of sin and completely conquer sin. Now you heard Dr. Meredith's sermon on a key to overcoming a week ago last Sabbath, weekly Sabbath, that has become a must-play 
sermon that was going out, that we practice our prayer and Bible study and meditation and fasting. But we also see that the days of unleavened bread teach us to eat of sincerity and truth. We saw in the previous sermon that Christ is the living bread. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. John 6.51, I am the living bread. And the unleavened bread represents truth, sincerity and truth. Again, John 17.17, your word is truth. The world claims to celebrate the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. But we know, and we know that we know, Christ was crucified in 31 A.D. on a Wednesday and was buried in the tomb just before or at sunset, the beginning of the first day of unleavened bread. And that night there was a lunar eclipse. It was a red blood moon. And Joel refers to that in Joel 2, verse 31. And the Apostle Peter quoted from Joel on the day of Pentecost. That same happened this year on the night to be much observed, 2014. And we know that Jesus was in the tomb, as Mr. Dexter Wakefield gave the sermon a couple weeks ago, I guess it was, or last week, the sign of Jonah, given the Sabbath of April 12th, 2014, and thoroughly explained, Matthew 20, verse 40. Whereas Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And John 19.31, when he was put into the tomb before the Sabbath, what Sabbath was that? The Sabbath was a high day. That was the Thursday high day, the first day of unleavened bread, beginning at sunset Wednesday evening. John 19.31, for that Sabbath was a high day. So Christ was in the heart of the earth, the tomb, for exactly 72 hours. And he rose at the end of the Saturday Sabbath. You might turn just uh, for one interesting aspect of that resurrection. John 20 and verse 1. John 20. Here people today observe a Easter sunrise service. Jesus rose Easter Sunday morning. Did he? John 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early Sunday morning while it was still dark. Jesus wasn't there. He had already been resurrected. He ascended that Sunday to heaven. When Mary said, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to my father. And saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb. And she ran and called to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. So it was still dark. But where did the name of Easter come from? According to the Catholic Encyclopedia article Easter, the name is that of a Teutonic goddess. But why would you call 
Sunday, the Easter Sunday so-called, after a Teutonic goddess. Is this Christian? And, of course, some uh, professing Christians realize that is a pagan symbol for that, and they call it Resurrection Sunday. They will not call it Easter. They call it Resurrection Sunday. Well, it wasn't resurrected on Sunday. It was resurrected Saturday night. Quoting from the Catholic Encyclopedia, quote, The English term, Easter, according to the Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E, is an English historian, relates to Estra, E-S-T-R-E, a Teutonic goddess of the rising light of day and sun. So the article acknowledges that even the apostolic fathers do not mention the Easter holiday. The encyclopedia asserts that it is the oldest feast of the Christian church. However, it brushes off this omission as follows, quote, that the apostolic fathers do not mention it and that we first hear of it principality, principally through the controversy of the Cordodecimans are purely accidental. So here even the Catholic Encyclopedia admits that Easter was not a part of the, the Apostolic Father's history. Now what is the quarter decimate? Let me just take a survey here. How many of you know what quarter decimate means? I see your hands, okay. Oh, it looks like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It looks like about 23%. So the other 77% need to understand what quarter decimate is. And we had, just a year ago, March, April, 2013, Tomorrow's World magazine, article by Mr. Dexter Wakefield, are you a quarter decimal? Should you be? 77% don't know the answer to that question. Should you be a quarter decimal? Quarto, four, decimal, ten. means the 14th. So here's what Mr. Dexter Wakefield wrote in that Tomorrow's World magazine article. Around the year 160 A.D., Pope Anicetus insisted on establishing the observance of Easter on a Sunday. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, modern Turkey, and a disciple of the Apostle John, strongly asserted the tradition taught by the Apostles themselves should prevail. So Polycarp is saying, look, you've got it wrong. I've been taught by the Apostle John. The Catholic Encyclopedia reports, while Antecedus was Pope, St. Polycarp, then in extreme old age, came to confer with him about 160-162 A.D. about the Paschal Controversy. So, of course, the the word in Greek, in Latin, Pascha, uh, and, of course, the King James had it in Acts 12, I guess it was, as Easter, uh, which was wrong. It should have been Passover. But about the Paschal Controversy, Polycarp and others in the East celebrated the feast on the 14th of the month, Nisan, no matter on what day of the week it fell. Whereas Rome, it was always observed on Sunday. Article, Pope St. Anicetus. <coughs> Excuse me. Polycarp and Anicetus finally agreed to disagree and parted peacefully. But the peace did not last. Pope Victor I, 189 to 198 A.D., quote, now called upon the bishops of the province of Asia to abandon their custom 
and to accept the universally prevailing Roman practice of always celebrating Easter on Sunday. In case that would not do, in case they would not do this, he declared they would be excluded from the fellowship of the church. And that's from the article Pope St. Victor. So again, Cordo Deciman is referring to those who keep the New Testament Passover on the 14th. So I encourage you to read that article again. You can access it on tomorrow's Word website. Are you a quarter deciman? Should you be March, April 2013, Tomorrow's World Magazine by Mr. Wakefield? Do we celebrate the resurrection of Christ? Actually, the days of unleavened bread demonstrate the power of the resurrection. The NIV Study Bible states this. Keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed the Passover, symbolizing living the Christian life in holy dedication to God and not getting involved in such sins as malice and wickedness and incestuous marriages, end of quote. So Christ is the living bread, and we're eating that unleavened bread, symbolizing the sinless life of Christ, and Christ lives in us by the Holy Spirit. There are dozens of scriptures that reveal the miracle of the resurrected Christ living and dwelling in true saints. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ by the reality that he's living his life in us. I challenge you to mark your Bibles where the powerful spiritual reality is stated, where it states Christ lives in us, or we live in him. Abide in me, and I in you, Jesus said. So the scriptures reveal that we live in him, we are the body of Christ. So I want to read some of those scriptures, First John. In fact, as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Meredith gave a sermon in Greenville this past Sabbath on First John. And just by coincidence, uh, there are several scriptures now that we'll read in First John, showing that this miracle of Christ living his life in us. Let's turn to 1 John, the second chapter, 1 John 2. This miracle, the spiritual power, gives us the ability to conquer sin completely by Christ living in us. 1 John, the second chapter, verse 24. And if you just look up in accordance the word abide in you or uh, lives in you, uh, you'll find several references here in 1 John and in other scriptures. But we'll take a look at those here in 1 John. 1 John 2 and verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning, that is the knowledge. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, we think of Christ abiding in us, but we don't often think so much as we living in the Father and living in Christ. And yet, this is what the Scripture says. He, as we read in verse 24, you also will abide or live in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. 
But the anointing which is, you, you have received from him abides in you, that is God's Holy Spirit, and you do not need that anyone teach you. I remember one ambassador student said, oh, well, I, you know, I don't need a teacher because this says here, you do not need anyone to teach you. What was John doing? He was teaching them, saying you don't need anyone to teach you. But he explains what he means. That is, God's Holy Spirit will teach you through the truth. But false ministers will not teach you the truth. But I, John, God's chosen apostle, will teach you the truth. And you are getting it through the Holy Word in this epistle. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie... And just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. And here's another. Have you high, high, highlighted it and marked nearby? You will abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him. That when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him. That is coming. This is a key exhortation when we think about Christ coming and we pray even come, so Lord Jesus. We look for Christ coming back, but we need to be confident as we look forward to His return. How do we have that confidence? Little children, abide in Him that when He appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His appearing. Chapter 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in him, because in him there is no sin, previous verse, does not sin. Now really what it is saying does not practice sin, because he's told us earlier that we should not sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, if anyone sins. He expects that true Christians are going to sin. But they're not going to practice sin as a continual habit. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's our high priest. He's our intercessor. He's our lawyer, our barrister, our advocate, our intercessor, our high priest. So, 1 John 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin, meaning practice sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. That is practicing sin. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. In verse 10, the bottom, the children of the God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Chapter 3, verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. The Christian abides in God, in Christ, and God in Christ in him. How do we know that? Again, another powerful verse. The end of verse 24. How do we know? By this we know that he abides in us. By the Spirit which He has given us. So that's how God lives in us, by the Holy Spirit. We thank God for that wonderful promise that by 
His Spirit, we know that He abides in us. Chapter 4 and verse 13, he repeats that same confirmation. 1 John 4.13, by this we know, how do we know that we abide in Him and He in us? Because He has given us of His Spirit. So God's Spirit confirms that God lives in us, Christ lives in us. Now you need to understand as a part of the background of 1 John that he was also confronting Gnostics. Gnostic is the Greek word meaning knowledge. They they had special knowledge. And so they thought that they knew. So John uses the expression throughout 1 John, by this we know. In one case he says, by this we know that we know because we keep his commandments. So we know that we know. We have God's true knowledge, not the Gnostic mystic knowledge which said you have to know the names of all these demagogues or these little these angels' names in order to go step by step in order to get into heaven. Well, that was a false religion. John makes it very clear, true knowledge through the evidence he gives us here in the epistle of 1 John. So 1 John 4 verse 13 By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. So how are we going to totally conquer sin? Because we abide in Him, and He in us. Verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Verse 15, again, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. And he in God. Verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Verse 19, We love him because he first loved us. So how are we going to overcome the world? Well, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4 of 1 John And whatever is born of God, should be begotten of God, overcomes the world. That's what we've been talking about. We have to be overcomers. The way of overcoming. We're walking and traveling on our daily exodus. And this is the victory. Thank God for the victories He gives us. He gives us triumphs. He gives us victories. Exodus 15 was a a victory hymn. God triumphed gloriously, as we read. But he who is begotten of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We are men and women of faith because we follow the example of those in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now you say, well, the world believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, they believe in a false Jesus, another Jesus, as the Apostle Paul warned, a Jesus who was not in the tomb 72 hours, three days and three nights, who believes that the true Jesus is the Son of God. 
So we understand that this is how we overcome the world. In chapter 5, uh, verse 18, whoever, we know that whoever is born of God, that is begotten of God, does not sin or does not practice sin. But he who has been begotten of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God, verse 20, 1 John 5, has come and given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So we've seen in two cases, 1 John 3.24, how do we know that Christ lives in us? By this we know that He abides abides in us by the Spirit which He's given us, 1 John 3.24. And 1 John 4.13, how do we know? By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. So when we eat of the unleavened bread, We think of the living bread from heaven, the sinless, unleavened life of Christ. We also remind us of the powerful life that God gives us through His Spirit, that we abide in Him and He in us. We've already had quoted to us Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.16 also talks about the faith of the Son of God. It's Christ's faith that saves us. There are more scriptures, and I think we should emphasize that even more. John, the 14th chapter, let's take a look at some more scriptures. You think, well... That's quite enough in 1 John. Let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We've read this during the Passover service, and this is very encouraging. I think I've seen in some homes the uh, scripture on a plaque or mounted in a framed uh, picture, John 14, Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, capital W-E, will come to him and make our home with him. Your home should be blessed because you are keeping his word. And our Father loves us and promises to make their home with us. And you know John 15 about Christ being the vine and we being the branches. Several times, again, he says, abide in me. Look, Notice that. Chapter 15 and verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We think of Christ living in us, but yes, we abide in Him too. How? Through the Holy Spirit. We belong to the body of Christ. We're one body, one bread. So we've heard in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, I believe it was. Verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done to you. Verse 8 is one that I think about in my prayers. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. How do we bear much fruit? We fulfill, as we heard in the offertory this morning, the sevenfold mission that God has given us through the leadership in His church. We have sermon number 794, the Philadelphian mission. We put our hearts in God's work. We respond to Christ's instructions through His word and through His ministry. We strive to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the earth. and So again, brethren, thank you for all your service to one another here in Charlotte, all the way in many ways that you serve here on the Sabbath. Thank you for your service in the outreach program. It's coming Friday. And several of you will be serving in the Habitat for a Humanity Project. Sometimes we let our light shine and we don't even realize it. A track coach of one of our teenagers observed her simple, thoughtful act of kindness. In fact, this is one of Dr. Meredith's great-granddaughters. The coach nominated her for Athlete of the Week, and the honor can be for performance on or off the track. And I'm going to change the granddaughter's name, the great-granddaughter's name, the track coach's nomination, quote, while leaving a dairy store, they had ice cream or something after the track meet. While leaving a dairy store after our track meet, she, Mary, noticed an elderly lady with a cart full of groceries. Many people wouldn't think much of it and just keep on walking and talking. However, Mary demonstrated the type of character that should make all of us proud. She approached the lady and asked her if she needed help. The lady declined. But as Mary left, I watched this lady look back at Mary with a look of pure appreciation. I'm not sure that Mary realized I was watching this happen or that this lady's facial expression said it all. This is what we all need to be doing to represent our high school. I am proud of you, Mary. So sometimes we do things that we really do naturally. Because we know we just want to help. We see someone in need, and we help that person. It's more blessed to give than to receive. One of the ways of overcoming the world is to become a light in the world. And we should do this in a natural way. When we see someone who's in need, we want to help that person. 
And the people said to Jesus when he was talking about the judgment, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So if we humble ourselves like the flat bread we heard about in the sermonette, we can conquer the world. We can triumph, as we read in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. We can have that victory as we humble ourselves. In 1 John 5, 4, we read, For whatever is begotten of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We thank God for his awesome promises that we are partakers of his divine nature, that we spiritually abide in Christ and he in us. In that way, we continually testify and witness to the resurrected Christ. Romans 5.10 For if when we are enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I turn there to Romans, the sixth chapter, Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? As the old man needs to remain dead. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so we saw that we were free from sin. So true true Christians understand the resurrection and the meaning of the living Christ through baptism and through the observance of the days of unleavened bread. God has called us to be overcomers. We've had quite a few sermons on overcoming. Dr. Meredith's weekly sermon on April 12th, A key to overcoming, as I mentioned, is a must-play sermon. Most of you heard that sermon. The Way of Overcoming, a sermon I gave just two days ago on the fifth day of the Days of Unleavened Bread with the three strategies, see the big picture, plan ahead, and remember your spiritual identity. We had several other sermons on overcoming, number 466, Overcoming Discouragement. Number 563, Overcoming Worry by Mr. Kinnear Penman. These are all available, by the way, on the LCG website. Just click on Sermons or in the search field, put the exact title of the sermon. Overcoming Your Fears, number 699 by Dr. Meredith. 701, Overcoming Your Fears and Phobias. 
705, overcoming her frustrations. 713, overcoming in 2013. Number 801, overcoming your human nature and overcoming the wiles of Satan by Dr. Meredith, number 804, which was a must play. God has revealed the great mysteries of life to his true saints. Let's turn to Colossians, the first chapter, Colossians 1. I hope, brethren, that you will certainly pray about these scriptures that we've been reading about, about our abiding in Christ, about the Father and Christ making their home with us, about Christ living his life in us through the Holy Spirit. And even that's called the mystery to the Gentiles. Colossians, the first chapter. And we'll start in verse 27. Colossians 1, verse 27. To them, that is the mystery that's been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, verse 26. Verse 27, to them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, God has given us that awesome benefit, that victory over sin. Through the days of unleavened bread, we understand that we can overcome sin completely through Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we understand through the days of unleavened bread that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. We have been criticized by others for emphasizing Jesus Christ. And, of course, Mr. Meredith gave a a sermon actually focused on Christ here a couple months ago. He said, oh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong would just preach on the kingdom of God. And he wasn't emphasizing Christ in preaching the gospel. This letter from Mr. Herbert Armstrong, dated December 12, 1958, the Radio Church of God. I have just noticed in going over letters written in the letter answering department, the tendency which, as this reminds me, most of us have unconsciously followed. It is the habit of speaking of salvation only in terms of, quote, living out a life of obedience to God, end of quote. We seem to have the tendency to speak only and solely of obedience, commandment keeping. But he goes on to speak here and later, we must stress the whole truth more. Repentance, surrender, Christ as Savior, being changed by God's Spirit as God's gift by grace following our conforming to his conditions of repentance and faith in Christ, the change from carnality to spiritual mindedness, being begotten, then the overcoming and enduring and growing life of obedience and living faith with Christ living his life in us. Let's not leave Christ and grace out of our speech and letters with love in Jesus' name, Herbert W. Armstrong. That was from Palm Springs, December 12, 1958. Through the Passover and the days of unleavened bread, we know the truth of the resurrection and the sign of Jonah, the only sign of his Messiahship 
that the vast majority of professing Christians deny by observing Easter Sunday. Christ is the true bread from heaven, and he gives us life day by day and gives us victory over sins. And though we face trials and tests, we have a positive faith. We are bound for the promised land. We have that enthusiasm. The Apostle Paul had to endure trials and tests, and you know how he did that. Second Corinthians, the twelfth chapter. Second Corinthians, the twelfth chapter. He pleaded three times that God would relieve him of this thorn in the flesh. Second Corinthians, the twelfth chapter. Starting with verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and approaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I think when I am I'm weak. I keep praying that God will give me victories. That He will give me strength. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Turn to Romans the 8th chapter. Romans 8. And here is another one of those powerful promises that we can have victory over sin. That we can completely conquer sin. Romans the 8th chapter and verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself, actually symbolic of Christ here, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. So we heard in the prayers, opening prayers and closing prayers, that we want the messages from the days of unleavened bread in these sermons so that we can be more like God the Father and we can be more like Christ. We want his image, we want his character, his mind, his thinking. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2 and verse 5. And so we want to be conformed to that image. Verse 30, for moreover whom he predestinated, those he also called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him, we're co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God, also freely give us all things. And the Greek is ta panta, meaning the all, everything that is seen, everything that is unseen. So God gives us that victory. He's on our side. Verse 37. In all these things, if we go through tribulation, distress, and 
Persecution and famine, verse 35. We're killed all the day long, counted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, Romans 8. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, are you afraid of death or life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers. We saw that God at one time told Israel to stand still, to see the salvation of the Lord. He told them to go forward in their journey. We need to pray to know when to stand still, when to go forward. We are on a daily exodus, but God will give us the ultimate victory. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. We all become more unleavened spiritually through Christ in us. And here in the 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, he talks about the resurrection that this mortal must put on immortality. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed, and death will be swallowed up in victory, verse 54. Verse 56, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God, verse 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Israelites were completely out of Egypt, symbolic of sin. But on the last day of unleavened bread, God gave them a great victory. But they continued on their journey, and they did not get Egypt out of themselves. We need to completely conquer sin. Remember Jesus' admonition in Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. How do we become perfect? We become perfect in unconditional love. We must be pure in heart and cleansed by the blood of Christ. God will give us the victory as we keep our eyes on the big picture. As we make our journey to the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. We have God's awesome promises. The one I showed you in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So brethren, let's go forward in faith, in dedication, determination, fulfilling the work of our Lord, as he said here in verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thank God that we are the church of the forgiving. Let's always strive to be the church of faithful overcomers.